when witches go riding and black cats are seen, the moon laughs and whispers, tis near Halloween. If you like to learn, but lack enough time, to locate the reason or translate the rhyme, with magical knowledge from ancient tomes on the shelf, I bring Halloween topics to geek thyself. Hello everyone, I'm Heather and I'll be your host for this podcast. Halloween is my favorite holiday and my favorite spooky time of the year. So park your broom at the door and listen for a spell as I brew up some Halloween topics for this week and the rest of October. Welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So, this week's a little different. Russ and I are both recording this episode, but we're doing it separately. Uh, Which probably sounds a little weird considering normally when we both record we're doing a conversation. This time, what we're actually going to be doing for you is sort of a Halloween special. So, we're doing a sort of introduction to fairy tales. Now, specifically, I guess I shouldn't really call it an introduction. We're going to read fairy tales. Russ is doing a more traditional fairy tale. And by traditional, I do want to go ahead and throw out a trigger warning real quick. Neither of us is going to read anything that's incredibly horribly graphic by any means. It's not going to be like a horror movie. However, anyone who has ever read a traditional fairy tale from pretty much any culture knows that traditional fairy tales are not Disney happy sweet. And I love Disney movies, and I like the interpretations they've made of these fairy tales. But there may be things that if you're talking about really young children or impressionable children, it might bother them. I'm not sure. To give you an idea, one of the fairy tales I'm reading for you tonight, well, it's night for me, is called The Tongue Cut Sparrow as in her tongue was cut, just to give you an idea. So if you think that might not be something appropriate for your child, I will say it's not described in great detail, but it does happen in the story. So if that's a problem for you, then you may want to skip this episode or listen to it yourself first and sort of screen it before letting any children listen to it. Other than that, like usual, we are trying to keep things pretty family friendly, but just in case, I wanted to throw that out there. Also, traditional fairy tales are usually not as big on the happy endings. It depends on the tale. The two I'm going to read for you tonight are both uh, very old and traditional Japanese folklore fairy tales. They both center around sort of learning a moral, which a lot of fairy tales do. In my case, both of the ones I'm going to be reading for you tonight deal with, you know, kind people get good things. If you put kindness out into the world, kindness and good things are going to come back to you. Whereas the cruel people, the cruel, evil, mean people get what's coming to them as well. So it's very karma heavy, which, you know, given that it's a Japanese fairy tale, makes sense. (laughs) It's what I grew up reading. Big surprise. Um, I actually think I read and knew these fairy tales Not before I knew, like, Cinderella and Snow White, but around the same time. Because, of course, I'm half Japanese, so I grew up reading these with my family. Now, to get into this, I also want to start off with my mid-roll. 
item, which I know is weird because we don't usually do that, but I want to talk about World Anvil. World Anvil's an amazing website. It's worldanvil.com. I highly recommend you check them out. They are the most robust world building and campaign management software out there. It's fantastic. There's so many things you can do. You can link different characters. You can really build up your story. And it's perfect whether you're an author trying to flesh out your world for your readers or whether you're a game master and you want to be able to flesh out your world for your players and let them create links with each other and with the NPCs. It's fantastic, fantastic product. Again, it's worldanvil.com. I definitely recommend you check them out. They're so amazing. They even won an any award. And they're also just really nice people. So that makes it even better because you get to use an amazing product and also support really nice people. It's a win-win situation. And with that, I'm going to get into a couple of Japanese fairy tales dealing with nice people getting good things. Okay, so the first story um, I'm going to read for you now, in this translation that I found online, um, it was translated well and compiled by Ye Theodora Ozaki. Now, this was compiled and published back in 1908. So some of the vernacular he used for translating might be a little old school. This story is called The Story of the Old Man Who Made Withered Trees to Flower. Obviously, it's a very literal translation. I grew up um, knowing this story as the old man who made the cherry blossoms bloom, was essentially the title. Um, trigger warning, just for anyone that this is an issue for, there is animal death in this story. It is not overly graphic, but it is mentioned and somewhat described. Um it's still like PG-13 level, but if that if you think that's going to be a problem for anyone listening, just go ahead and stop or skip to the next story. Long, long ago, there lived an old man and his wife who supported themselves by cultivating a small plot of land. Their life had been a very happy and peaceful one, save for one great sorrow, and this was they had no child. Their only pet was a dog named Shiro. On him, they lavished all the affection of their old age. Indeed, they loved him so much that whenever they had anything nice to eat, they denied themselves to give it to Shiro. Now, Shiro means white, and he was so called because of his color. He was a real Japanese dog, a Shiba Inu, and very like a small wolf in appearance. The happiest hour of the day for both the old man and his dog was when the man returned from his work in the field and having finished his frugal supper of rice and vegetables would take what he had saved from the meal out to the little veranda that ran around the cottage. Sure enough, Shiro was waiting for his master and the evening tidbit. Then the old man said, Chin Chin! And Shiro sat up and begged and his master gave him the food. Next door to this good old couple, there lived another old man and his wife, who were both wicked and cruel, and who hated their good neighbors and the dog Shiro with all their might. Whenever Shiro happened to look into their kitchen, they at once kicked him or threw something at him, sometimes even wounding him. One day, Shiro was heard barking for a long time in the field at the back of his master's house. The old man, thinking that perhaps some birds were attacking the corn, hurried out to see what was the matter. As soon as Shiro saw his master, he ran to meet him, wagging his tail and seizing the end of his kimono, dragging him under a large yanoki tree. Here he began to dig very industriously with his paws, yelping with joy all the while. 
the old man, unable to understand what it all meant, stood looking on in bewilderment, but Shiro went on barking and digging with all his might. The thought that something might be hidden beneath the tree and that the dog had scented it at last struck the old man. He ran back to the house, fetched his spade, and began to dig the ground at that spot. What was his astonishment when, after digging for some time, he came upon a heap of old and valuable coins, and the deeper he dug, the more gold coins he did he find. So intent was the old man on his work that he never saw the cross face of his neighbor peering at him through the bamboo hedge. At last, all the gold coins lay shining on the ground. Shiro sat by, erect with pride and looking fondly at his master, as if to say, You see, though only a dog, I can make some return for all the kindness you show me. The old man ran in to call his wife, and together they carried home the treasure. Thus in one day, the poor old man became rich. His gratitude to the faithful dog knew no bounds, and he loved and petted him more than ever, if that were possible. The cross old neighbor, attracted by Shiro's barking, had been an unseen and envious witness of the finding of the treasure. He began to think that he, too, would like to find a fortune. So a few days later, he called at the old man's house and very ceremoniously asked permission to borrow Shiro for a short time. Shiro's master thought this a strange request because he knew quite well that not only did his neighbor not love his pet dog, but that he never lost an opportunity of striking and tormenting him whenever the dog crossed his path. But the good old man was too kind-hearted to refuse his neighbor, so he consented to lend the dog on condition that he should be taken great care of. The wicked old man returned to his home with an evil smile on his face and told his wife how he had succeeded in his crafty intentions. He then took his spade and hastened to his own field, forcing the unwilling Shiro to follow him. As soon as he reached a yonoki tree, he said to the dog threateningly, If there were gold coins under your master's tree, there must also be gold coins under my tree. You must find them for me. Where are they? Where, where? And catching hold of Shiro's neck, he held the dog's head to the ground, so that Shiro began to scratch and dig in order to free himself from the horrid old man's grasp. The old man was very pleased when he saw the dog begin to scratch and dig, for he at once supposed that some gold coins lay buried under his tree as well as under his neighbor's, and that the dog had scented them as before. So pushing Shiro away, he began to dig himself, but there was nothing to be found. As he went on digging, a foul smell was noticeable, and he at last came upon a refuse heap. The old man's disgust can be imagined. This soon gave way to anger. He had seen his neighbor's good fortune, and hoping for the same luck himself, he had borrowed the dog Shiro, and now... Just as he seemed on the point of finding what he sought, only a horrid-smelling refuse heap had rewarded him for a morning's digging. Instead of blaming his own greed for his disappointment, he blamed the poor dog. He seized his spade and with all his strength struck Shiro and killed him on the spot. He then threw the dog's body into the hole which he had dug in the hope of finding a treasure of gold coins and covered it with the earth. Then he returned to the house telling no one, not even his wife, what he had done. After waiting several days, as the dog Shiro did not return, his master began to grow anxious. Day after day went by, and the good old man waited in vain. Then he went to his neighbor and asked him to give back his dog. Without any hesitation or shame, the wicked neighbor answered that he had killed Shiro because of his bad behavior. At this dreadful news, Shiro's master wept many sad and bitter tears, 
Great indeed was his woeful surprise, but he was too good and gentle to reproach his bad neighbor. Learning that Shiro was buried under the yanoki tree in the field, he asked the old man to give him the tree, in remembrance of his poor dog Shiro. Even the cross old neighbor could not refuse such a simple request, so he consented to give the old man the tree under which Shiro lay buried. Shiro's master then cut the tree down and carried it home. Out of the trunk he made a mortar. In this his wife put some rice and he began to pound it with the intention of making a festival to the memory of his dog Shiro. Pausing in the story for just a second, the reason this is significant is that you you pound rice in a mortar, in a traditional Japanese mortar, to make rice flour, and then you add water and turn it into mochi. Mochi is a Japanese dessert, and mochi cakes and rice cakes are often served at funerals and memorials as sort of a gift to the spirit of the person or loved one who has passed on. So basically what he did is he took the tree. He's going to make a a bunch of cakes to remember his dog with and to have a, a festival, a funeral ceremony, essentially. Um, just throwing that in there because I'm sure a lot of people have no idea why that's significant. So he's making the memory for his dog, Shiro. A strange thing happened. His wife put the rice into the mortar, and no sooner had he begun to pound it to make the cakes than it began to increase in quantity, gradually, till it was about five times the original amount. And the cakes were turned out of the mortar as if an invisible hand were at work. When the old man and his wife saw this, they understood that it was a reward to them from Shiro for their faithful love to him. They tasted the cakes and found them nicer than any other food. So from this time they never troubled about food, for they lived upon the cakes with which the mortar never ceased to supply them. The greedy neighbor, hearing of this new piece of good luck, was filled with envy as before, and called on the old man and asked leave to borrow the wonderful mortar for a short time, pretending that he too sorrowed for the death of Shiro, and wished to make cakes for a festival to the dog's memory. The old man did not in the least wish to lend it to his cruel neighbor, but he was too kind to refuse. So the envious man carried home the mortar, but he never brought it back. Several days passed, and Shiro's master waited in vain for the mortar. So he went to call on the borrower and asked him to be good enough to return the mortar if he had finished with it. He found him sitting by a big fire made of pieces of wood. On the ground lay what looked very much like pieces of a broken mortar. In answer to the old man's inquiry, the wicked neighbor laughed haughtily. Have you come to ask me for your mortar? I broke it to pieces, and now I am making a fire of the wood, for when I tried to pound cakes in it, only some horrid-smelling stuff came out. The good old man said, I am very sorry for that. It is a great pity that you did not ask me for the cakes if you wanted them. I would have given you as many as ever you wanted. Now please give me the ashes of the mortar, as I wish to keep them in remembrance of my dog. The neighbor consented at once, and the old man carried home a basket full of ashes. Not long after this, the old man accidentally scattered some of the ashes made by the burning of the mortar on the trees of his garden. A wonderful thing happened. It was late in autumn, and all the trees had shed their leaves, but no sooner did the ashes touch their branches than the cherry trees, the plum trees, and all other blossoming shrubs burst into bloom, so that the old man's garden was suddenly transformed into a beautiful picture of spring. The old man's delight knew no bounds, and he carefully preserved the remaining ashes. 
The story of the old man's garden spread far and wide, and people from far and near came to see the wonderful sight. One day, soon after this, the old man heard someone knocking at his door, and going to the porch to see who it was, he was surprised to see a knight standing there. This knight told him that he was a retainer of a great daimyo, a lord, that was... Uh, that one of the favorite cherry trees in his noble men's garden had withered, and that though everyone in his service had tried all manner of means to retrieve it, excuse me, to revive it, none took effect. The knight was sore perplexed when he saw what great displeasure the loss of his favorite cherry tree caused the daimyo. At this point, fortunately, they had heard that there was a wonderful old man who could make withered trees to blossom, and that his lord had sent him to ask the old man to come to him. And added the knight, I shall be very much obliged if you will come at once. The old man was greatly surprised at what he heard, but respectfully followed the knight to the nobleman's palace. The daimyo, who had been impatiently awaiting the old man's coming, as soon as he saw him asked him at once, Are you the old man who can make withered trees flower even out of season? The old man made an obeisance, he bowed, and replied, I am that old man. Then the daimyo said, you must make that dead cherry tree in my garden blossom again by means of your famous acid ashes. I shall look on. Then they all went into the garden, the daimyo and his retainers and the ladies-in-waiting who carried the daimyo's sword. The old man now tucked up his kimono and made ready to climb the tree. Saying, excuse me, he took the pot of ashes which he had brought with him and began to climb the tree, everyone watching his movements with great interest. At last, he climbed to the spot where the tree divided into two great branches, and taking up his position there, the old man sat down and scattered the ashes right and left all over the branches and twigs. Wonderful indeed was the result. The withered tree at once burst into full bloom. The daimyo was so transported with joy that he looked as if he would go mad. He rose to his feet and spread out his fan, calling the old man down from the tree. He himself gave the old man a wine cup filled with the best sake and rewarded him with much silver and gold and many other precious things. The daimyo ordered that henceforth the old man should call himself by the name of Hanasaka Jiji, or the old man who makes the trees to blossom, and that henceforth all were to recognize him by this name, and he sent him home with great honor. The wicked neighbor, as before, heard of the good old man's fortune and of all that had so auspiciously befallen him, and he could not suppress all the envy and jealousy that filled his heart. He called to mind how he had failed in his attempt to find the gold coins and then in making the magic cakes. This time, surely, he must succeed if he imitated the old man, who made withered trees to flower simply by sprinkling ashes on them. This would be the simplest task of all. So he set to work and gathered together all the ashes which remained in the fireplace from the burning of the wonderful mortar. Then he set out in the hope of finding some great man to employ him. Calling out loudly as he went along, Here comes the wonderful man who can make withered trees blossom. Here comes the old man who can make dead trees blossom. The daimyo in his palace heard this cry and said, That must be the Hanasaka Jiji passing. I have nothing to do today. Let him try his art again. It will amuse me to look on. So the retainers went out and brought in the impostor before their lord. The satisfaction of the false old man can now be imagined, but the daimyo, looking at him, thought it strange that he was not at all like the old man he had seen before. So he asked him, Are you the man whom I named Hanasaka Jiji? 
And the envious neighbor answered with a lie. Yes, my lord. That is strange, said the daimyo. I thought there was only one Hanasakajiji in this world. Has he now some disciples? I am the true Hanasakajiji. The one who came to you before was only my disciple, replied the old man again. Then you must be more skillful than the other. Try what you can do and let me see. The envious neighbor, with the daimyo and his court following, then went into the garden and, approaching a dead tree, took out a handful of the ashes which he carried with him and scattered them over the tree. But not only did the tree not burst into flower, but not even a bud came forth. Thinking that he had not used enough ashes, the old man took handfuls and again sprinkled them over the withered tree, but all to no effect. After trying several times, the ashes were blown into the daimyo's eyes. This made him very angry, and he ordered his retainers to arrest the false Hanasaka Jiji at once and put him in prison for an imposter. From this imprisonment, the wicked old man was never freed. Thus did he meet his punishment at last for all his evil doings. The good old man, however, with the treasure of gold coins which Shiro had found for him, and with all the gold and silver which the daimyo had showered on him, became a rich and prosperous man in his old age, and lived a long and happy life, beloved and respected by all. So that was the story of the man who could make the trees blossom, or the old man who made the cherry trees blossom, depending on the name of the story you grew up listening to. As I did warn you, there was some things that are not great, unfortunately, for young listeners, but hopefully you enjoyed that story. And uh, it took me a little longer to read than I thought it would, but nonetheless, on to our next story, which is the story of the tongue-cut sparrow. Long, lo This one actually also has nice people and bad people in it. So, pretty similar. The Tongue Cut Sparrow. Long, long ago in Japan, there lived an old man and his wife. The old man was a good, kind-hearted, hard-working old fellow, but his wife was a regular cross-patch, who spoiled the happiness of her home by her scalding tongue. She was always grumbling about something from morning to night. The old man had, for a long time, ceased to take any notice of her crossness. He was out most of the day at work in the fields, and as he had no child, for his amusement when he came home, he kept a tame sparrow. He loved the little bird just as much as if she had been his child. When he came back at night after his hard day's work in the open air, it was his only pleasure to pet the sparrow, to talk to her, and to teach her little tricks, which she learned very quickly. The old man would open her cage and let her fly about the room, and they would play together. Then when supper time came, he always saved some tidbits from his meal with which to feed his little bird. Now, one day, the old man went out to chop wood in the forest, and the old woman stopped at home to wash clothes. The day before, she had made some starch, and now when she came to look for it, it was all gone. The bowl which she had filled full yesterday was quite empty. While she was wondering who could have used or stolen the starch, down flew the pet sparrow, and bowing her little feathered head, a trick which she had been taught by her master, the pretty bird chirped and said, It is I who have taken the starch. I thought it was some food put out for me in that basin, and I ate it all. If I have made a mistake, I beg you to forgive me. Tweet, tweet, tweet. You see, from this that the sparrow was a truthful bird, and the old woman ought to have been willing to forgive her at once when she asked her pardon so nicely. But not so. 
The old woman had never loved the sparrow and had often quarreled with her husband for keeping what she called a dirty bird around the house, saying that it only made extra work for her. Now she was only too delighted to have some cause of complaint against the pet. She scolded and even cursed the poor little bird for her bad behavior. And not content with using these harsh, unfeeling words, in a fit of rage, she seized the sparrow, who all this time had spread out her wings and bowed her head before the old woman to show how sorry she was, and fetched the scissors and cut off the poor little bird's tongue. I suppose you took my starch with that tongue. Now you may see what it is like to go without it. And with these dreadful words, she drove the bird away, not caring in the least what might happen to it, and without the smallest pity for its suffering. So unkind was she. The old woman, after she had driven the sparrow away, made some more rice paste, grumbling all the time at the trouble, and after starching all her clothes, spread the things on boards to dry in the sun instead of ironing them, as they do in England. In the evening, the old man came home. As usual, on the way back, he looked forward to the time when he should reach his gate and see his pet come flying and chirping to meet him, ruffling out her feathers to show her joy, and at last coming to rest on his shoulder. But tonight, the old man was very disappointed, for not even the shadow of his dear sparrow was to be seen. He quickened his steps, hastily drew off his straw sandals, and stepped onto the veranda. Still no sparrow was to be seen. He now felt sure that his wife, in one of her cross tempers, had shut the sparrow up in its cage. So he called her and said anxiously, Where is Suzume-san, Miss Sparrow, today? The old woman pretended not to know at first and answered, Your sparrow? I'm sure I don't know. Now I come to think of it, I haven't seen her all the afternoon. I shouldn't wonder if the ungrateful bird had flown away and left you after all your petting. But at last, when the old man gave her no peace, but asked her again and again, insisting that she must know what had happened to his pet, she confessed all. She told him crossly how the sparrow had eaten the rice paste she had specially made for starching her clothes, and how, when the sparrow had confessed to her what she had done in great anger, she had taken her scissors and cut out her tongue, and how, finally, she had driven the bird away and forbidden her to return to the house again. Then the old woman showed her husband the sparrow's tongue, saying, "'Here is the tongue I cut off, horrid little bird. Why did it eat all my starch?' "'How could you be so cruel? Oh, how could you be so cruel?' was all that the old man could answer. He was too kind-hearted to punish his shrew of a wife but he was terribly distressed, distressed at what had happened to his poor little sparrow. What a dreadful misfortune for my poor Suzume-san to lose her tongue, he said to himself. She won't be able to chirp any more, and surely the pain of the cutting of it out in the rough way must have made her ill. Is there nothing to be done? The old man shed many tears after his cross wife had gone to sleep. While he wiped away the tears with the sleeve of his cotton robe, a bright thought comforted him. He would go and look for the sparrow on the morrow. Having decided this, he was able to go to sleep at last. The next morning he rose early, as soon as ever the day broke, and snatching a hasty breakfast, started out over the hills and through the woods, stopping at every clump of bamboos to cry, Where, oh, where does my tongue-cut sparrow stay? Where, oh, where does my tongue-cut sparrow stay? He never stopped to rest for his noonday meal, and it was far on the, in the afternoon when he found himself near a large bamboo wood. Bamboo groves are the favorite haunts of sparrows, and there, sure enough, at the edge of the wood, he saw his own dear sparrow waiting to welcome him. He could hardly believe his eyes for joy and ran forward quickly to greet her. 
She bowed her little head and went through a number of the tricks her master had taught her to show her pleasure at seeing her old friend again. And wonderful to relate, she could talk as of old. The old man told her how sorry he was for all that had happened and inquired after her tongue, wondering how she could speak so well without it. Then the, pharaoh, the sparrow opened her beak and showed him that a new tongue had grown in the place of the old one and begged him not to think any more about the past, for she was quite well now. Then the old man knew that his sparrow was a fairy and no common bird. It would be difficult to exaggerate the old man's rejoicing now. He forgot all his troubles. He forgot even how tired he was, for he had found his lost sparrow. And instead of being ill and without a tongue as he had feared and expected to find her, she was well and happy and with a new tongue and without a sign of the ill treatment that she had received from his wife. And above all, she was a fairy. The sparrow asked him to follow her, and, flying before him, she led him to a beautiful house in the heart of the bamboo grove. The old man was utterly astonished when he entered the house to find what a beautiful place it was. It was built of the whitest wood, the softest cream-colored match. Mats, which took the place of carpets, were the finest he had ever seen, and the cushions that the sparrow brought out for him to sit on were made of the finest silken crepe. Beautiful vases and lacquer boxes adorned the tokonama, um, which is a little alcove of every room. The sparrow led the old man to the place of honor, and then, taking her place at a humble distance, she thanked him with many polite bows for all the kindness he had shown her for many long years. Then the lady sparrow, as we will now call her, introduced all her family to the old man. This done, her daughters, robed in dainty crepe gowns, brought in on beautiful old-fashioned trays a feast of all kinds of delicious foods, till the old man began to think he must be dreaming. In the middle of the dinner, some of the sparrow's daughters performed a wonderful dance called the Suzume Odori, or the sparrow's dance, to amuse the guest. Never had the old man enjoyed himself so much. The hours flew by too quickly in this lovely spot with all these fairy sparrows to wait upon him and to feast him and to dance before him. But the night came on, and the darkness reminded him that he had a long way to go and must think about taking his leave and returning home. He thanked his kind hostess for her splendid entertainment and begged her for his sake to forget all she had suffered at the hands of his cross old wife. He told the lady sparrow that it was a great comfort and happiness to him to find her in such a beautiful home and know that she wanted for nothing. It was his anxiety to know how she fared and what had really happened to her that had led him to seek her. Now he knew that all was well he could return home with a light heart. If ever she wanted him for anything, she had only to send for him and he would come at once. The Lady Sparrow begged him to stay and rest several days and enjoy the change, but the old man said he must return to his old wife, who would probably be cross at his not coming home at the usual time, and to his work, and, for much as he wished to do so, he could not accept her kind invitation. But now that he knew where the Lady Sparrow lived, he would come to see her whenever he had the time. When the Lady Sparrow saw that she could not persuade the old man to stay longer, she gave an order to some of her servants, and they at once brought in two boxes, one large and the other small. These were placed before the old man, and the Lady Sparrow asked him to choose whichever he liked for a present, which she wished to give him. The old man could not refuse this kind proposal, and he chose the smaller box, saying, I am too old and feeble to carry the big and heavy box, 
As you are so kind as to say that I may take whichever I like, I will choose the small one, which will be easier for me to carry. Then the sparrows all helped him put it on his back and went to the gate to see him off, bidding him goodbye with many bows and entreating him to come again whenever he had the time. Thus the old man and his pet sparrow separated quite happily, the sparrow showing not the least ill will for all the unkindness she had suffered at the hands of the old wife. Indeed, she only felt sorrow for the old man who had to put up with it all his life. When the old man reached home, he found his wife even crosser than usual, for it was late on in the night and she had been waiting for him for a long time. "'Where have you been all this time?' she asked in a big voice. "'Why do you come back so late?' The old man tried to pacify her by showing her the box of presents he had brought back with him. And then he told her of all that had happened to him and how wonderfully he had been entertained at the sparrow's house. "'Now let us see what is in the box,' said the old man, not giving her time to grumble again. "'You must help me open it.' And they both sat down before the box and opened it. To their utter astonishment, they found the box filled to the brim with gold and silver coins and many other precious things. The mats of their little cottage fairly glittered as they took out the things one by one and put them down and handled them over and over again. The old man was overjoyed at the sight of the riches that were now his, Beyond his brightest expectations was the sparrow's gift, which would enable him to give up work and live in ease and comfort the rest of his days. He said, Thanks to my good little sparrow, thanks to my good little sparrow, many times. But the old woman, after the first moments of surprise and satisfaction at the sight of gold and silver were over, could not suppress the greed of her wicked nature. She now began to reproach the old man for not having brought home the big box of presents, for in the innocence of his heart he had told her how he had refused the large box of presents which the sparrows had offered him, preferring the smaller one because it was light and easy to carry home. "'You silly old man,' said she, "'why did you not bring the large box? Just think what we have lost. We might have had twice as much silver and gold as this. You are certainly an old fool,' she screamed, and then went to bed as angry as she could be. The old man now wished that he had said nothing about the big box, but it was too late. The greedy old woman, not content with the good luck which had so unexpectedly befallen them, and which she so little deserved, made up her mind, if possible, to get more. Early the next morning, she got up and made the old man describe the way to the sparrow's house. When he saw what was in her mind, he tried to keep her from going, but it was useless. She would not listen to one word he said. It is strange that the old woman did not feel ashamed of going to see the sparrow, after the cruel way she had treated her in cutting off her tongue in a fit of rage. But her greed to get the big box made her forget everything else. It did not even enter her thoughts that the sparrows might be angry with her, as indeed they were, and might punish her for what she had done. Ever since the lady sparrow had returned home in the sad plight in which they had first found her, weeping and bleeding from the mouth, her whole family and relations had done little else but speak of the cruelty of the old woman. How could she, they asked each other, inflict such a heavy punishment for such a trifling offense as that of eating some rice paste by mistake. They all loved the old man who was so good, kind and good and patient under all his troubles, but the old woman they hated, and they determined, if ever they had the chance, to punish her as she deserved. They had not long to wait. After walking for some hours, the old woman had at last found the bamboo grove, which she had made her husband carefully describe, and now she stood there before it, crying out, "'Where's the tongue-cut sparrow's house? "'Where's the tongue-cut sparrow's house?' 
At last, she saw the eaves of the house peeping out from amongst the bamboo foliage. She hastened to the door and knocked loudly. When the servants told the Lady Sparrow that her old mistress was at the door asking to see her, she was somewhat surprised at the unexpected visit. After all that had taken place, and she wondered not a little at the boldness of the old woman in venturing to come to the house. The Lady Sparrow, however, was a polite bird, and so she went out to greet the old woman, remembering that she had once been her mistress. The old woman intended, however, to waste no time in words. She went right to the point without the least shame and said, "'You need not trouble to entertain me as you did my old man. I have come myself to get the box which he so stupidly left behind. I shall soon take my leave if you will give me the big box. That is all I want.' The Lady Sparrow at once consented and told her servants to bring out the big box. The old woman eagerly seized it and hoisted it onto her back, and without even stopping to thank the Lady Sparrow, began to hurry homewards. The box was so heavy that she could not walk fast, much less run, as she would have liked to do. So anxious was she to get home and see what was inside the box. But she had often to sit down and rest herself by the way. While she was staggering along under the heavy load, her desire to open the box became too great to resist. She could wait no longer, for she supposed this big box to be full of gold and silver and precious jewels like the small one her husband had received. At last, this greedy and selfish old woman put down the box by the wayside and opened it carefully, expecting to gloat her eyes on a mine of wealth. What she saw, however, so terrified her that she nearly lost her senses. As soon as she lifted the lid, a number of horrible and frightful-looking demons bounced out of the box and surrounded her, as if they intended to kill her. Not even in nightmares had she ever seen such horrible creatures as her much-coveted box contained. A demon with one huge eye right in the middle of its forehead came and glared at her. Monsters with gaping mouths looked as if they would devour her. A huge snake coiled and hissed about her, and a big frog hopped and croaked towards her. The old woman had never been so frightened in her life and ran from the spot as fast as her quaking legs would carry her, glad to escape alive. When she finally reached home, she fell to the floor and told her husband with tears all that had happened to her, and how she had nearly been killed by the demons in the box. Then she began to blame the sparrow, but the old man stopped her at once, saying, Don't blame the sparrow. It is your wickedness which has at last met with its reward. I only hope this may be a lesson to you in the future. The old woman said nothing more, and from that day she repented of her cross, unkind ways, and by degrees became a good old woman, so that her husband hardly knew her to be the same person, and they spent their last days together happily, free from want or care, spending carefully the treasure the old man had received from his pet, the tongue-cut sparrow. And those are my two Japanese fairy tales. As I mentioned, they're traditional fairy tales, so they're not, they're like there's a happy ending the bad guy gets what is coming to them but they're not necessarily fairy tale disney type happy endings but these are the kind of stories i grew up with now there are some variations between the stories i just read and the ones i read growing up the version of the tongue cut sparrow that i had read growing up the old woman when she opened the box instead of finding demons she was basically opening a box full of horrible insects so like centipedes and spiders and scorpions and that kind of stuff came out of the box at her not demons but similar idea she opened up the box and found something horrible also for anyone listening who's confused as to why 
the sparrows were dancing for the old man and how they brought him out trays of food. Um, there's no illustrations with this translation of the story, but in the fairy tale book that I had growing up, the pictures showed that because the sparrow was a fairy, she actually had the head of a sparrow and the body of a beautiful human woman. So essentially what's happening is when they say that she's a fairy, that's supposed to be an indication to you that even though she is a sparrow, she has some sort of a human form that she's able to take on. But that's something that's not necessarily inherent in the translation. It's, it's not going to instantly click for someone who's never read Japanese fairy tales, but that is what they're describing. Um, and with that, I'm going to call my half of the episode good. It's a little longer, but because we're reading fairy tales and because I know neither of mine were super long, I went ahead and read two. Uh, Rasa is going to be talking to you very soon about our other amazing sponsor. And then he's going to hit you with a new fairy tale. Uh, I don't know which one. I'm going to be surprised just like you are, but hopefully you enjoy. And uh, for those of you out there who celebrate it, Happy Halloween, and I hope you have a great weekend. Bye. Okay. Hi, guys. Thank you, Heather, for doing those two lovely stories. Uh, as Heather already explained at the start, uh, we are recording separately because, again, schedules are just really, really rough, and because this is something we can actually do separately along with doing some stories. So uh, first off, though, I'm going to talk very, very, very quickly about dieharddice.com diehard dice create wonderful sputendous lovely dice uh, focusing mainly on metal ones but they also have their own polymer line as well they have done super super fun things with colors and stylings over the past couple years we still love all the things they do their spellbinder series with dual colors and um, the new prism uh draconic uh, series as well which look like dragon scales uh, absolutely gorgeous they've also got their great um scroll off rolling which we keep talking about because it's super amazing uh yep you can find anything that you'd like from there for like and you can search by like class or color or material or anything or even and price and all that kind of thing so you can find exactly what you want uh we love them I love their dice. I can't wait to get more of them. Uh, if you find anything that you like on their website, you can use the code GeekThyself to get 15% off your first or your next order with them. So yeah, if you would like to roll with the best, all you need to do is go to dieharddice.com. Okay, so now that bit's sort of been covered. Uh, as you can see, Heather's gone a little bit over, so I'll be covering a middling sort of length story and see how that goes maybe too depending on if it's a shorter one or not uh, i am going to be looking at some stories from the brothers grimm uh who are german um folklorists uh <clears throat> they have written many 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 stories uh, that you'll be familiar with from disney films like cinderella and sleeping beauty and then other ones like Hansel and Gretel and all those kind of things. Uh, I'm going to try and pick out a couple that are a little less well-known. Just, you know, I feel like that's a bit more fun because you've probably heard those stories. So I'm going to get right into it. All right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So the first one that I'm going to start with is a story called The Singing Bone. Oh. Uh, in a certain country, there was once great lament lamentation over a wild boar that laid waste to the farmer's fields, killed the cattle, and ripped up people's bodies with his tusks. 
the king promised a large reward to anyone who would free the land of the plague from this plague. But the beast was so big and strong that no one dared to go near the forest in which it lived. At last the king gave notice that whosoever should capture or kill the wild boar should have his only daughter to wife. Now there lived uh, in the country two brothers, sons of a poor man, who declared themselves willing to undertake the hazardous enterprise. The elder, who was crafty and shrewd, out of pride. The younger, who was innocent and simple, from a kind heart. The king said, "In order that you may be the uh, mo <coughs> in order that you may be the most sure of finding the beast, you must go into the wa uh, into the forest from opposite sides." So the elder went in on the west side and the younger on the east. When the younger had gone a short way, a little man stepped up to him. He held in his hand a black spear and said, I give you this spear because your heart is pure and good. With this you can boldly attack the wild boar and it will do you no harm. <coughs> he thanked the little man, shouldered the spear and went on fearlessly. Before long he saw the beast, which rushed at him. But he held the spear toward it, and in its flying flurry it ran so swiftly against it that it, uh, its heart was clove, uh, cloven in twain. Then he took the monster on his back and went homewards with it to the king. As he came out of the other side of the wood, there stood at the entrance of a, ho of entrance a house where people were making merry with wine and dancing. His elder brother had gone in here, and thinking that, after all, uh, the, uh, the boar would not run away from him, he was going to drink until he felt brave. But when he saw his young brother coming out of the, of the wood laden with his booty, his envious evil heart gave him no peace. He called out to him, Come in, dear brother, rest and refresh yourself with a cup of wine. The youth, who suspected no evil, went in and told him about the uh, told him about the good little man who had given him the spear where, wherewith he had slain the boar. The elder brother kept him there until the until the evening, and then uh, they went away together. And when uh, in the darkness they came to a bridge over a brook, the elder brother let uh, the other go first. And when he was halfway across the bridge, he gave such a blow from behind that he fell down dead. He buried him beneath the bridge, took the boar, and carried it to the king, pretending he had killed it. Uh, whereupon he obtained the king's daughter in marriage. And when his younger brother did not come back, he said, the boar must have killed him, and everyone believed it. But as nothing remains hidden from God, so this black deed was also was to come uh, to light. Years afterward, a shepherd, a shepherd was driving his herd across the bridge, and saw laying in the sand beneath a snow-white little bone. He thought it would make a, a good mouthpiece, so he, climbed, he, he clambered down, picked it up, and cut out, <coughs> and cut out, uh, and cut out of it a mouthpiece for his horn. But when he blew through it for the first time, his to his great astonishment, the bone began of, of its own accord began to sing, "Ah, friend, thou blowest upon my bone. Long have I lain beside the water. My brother slew me for the boar, and took uh, for his wife the king's young daughter." What a wonderful horn, said the shepherd. It sings by itself. I must take it to my lord, the king. And when he came to the king with the horn again, it began to sing uh, it, it began to sing its little song. The king understood it all, and caused the, the ground below the bridge to be dug up. 
and uh, then the whole skeleton of the murdered man came to light. The wicked brother could not deny the deed and was soon up in a second round. But the bones of the murdered man were laid to rest in a beautiful tomb in the churchyard. Okay, so yeah, uh, that's the first one. <clears throat> Please ignore my lovely dyslexia, again, playing up with story readings. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, similar lines of the sort of bonds with Heather. Obviously, someone uh, does end up dying in it, but the, the wrong uh, doer does get caught in the end, and it does balance out a little bit. So yeah. Okay, so the next story that I'm going to be looking at is called Godfather Death, again by the the Brothers Grimm. So yeah, let's get uh, right into it. <clears throat> a poor man, <clears throat> a poor man had twelve children and had to work day and night in order just to feed them. Thus, when uh, the thirteenth came into the world, not knowing what to do uh, in his need, he ran out into the hallway, intending to ask the first person who he met. To be the to be the Godfather. Uh, the first person who he, who came uh, his way was uh, our dear God, who already knew uh, what was in his heart, and God said to him, "Poor man, I pity you. I will hold uh, your child at his baptism, and care for him, and make him happy on earth." The man said, "Who are you? I am God." Then I do not wish uh, to have you for a Godfather," said the man. You give to the rich and let the poor starve. Thus spoke the man, for he did not know how wise, uh, wisely God uh, divides out wealth and poverty. Then he turned away from uh, the Lord and went on his way. Then the devil came to him and said, What are you looking for? If you will take me as your child's godfather, <coughs> I will give him an abundance of gold and all the joys of the world as well. The man asked, Who are you? I am the devil. And I do not wish uh, to have you for a godfather, said the man. You deceive mankind and lead them astray, he said, and went on his way. And then death, on uh, his withered legs, came walking in and said, Take me as your child's godfather. The man asked, Who are you? I am death, who makes everyone equal. Then the man said, You are the right one. Uh, you take away the rich as well as the poor without distinction. You shall be my child's godfather. Death answered, I will make your child rich and famous, for he, uh, for he who has me for a friend cannot fail. The man said, Next Sunday is the baptism. Be there on time. This appeared as he promised and served as godfather in an orderly manner. After the boy came of age, his godfather appeared to him one day and asked him to go with him. He took him out into the woods and showed him a herb uh, that grew there, saying, now you shall receive your godfather's present. I will turn you into a famous physician. Whenever you are called to a sick, per sick person, I will appear to you. If I stand at the sick person's head, you may say with confidence uh, that you can make him well again. Then give, some, then give uh, him some of this herb and he will recover. But if I stand at the person, sick person's feet, he is mine and you must say that he is beyond help and that no physician in the world could save him. But beware of using the herb against my will, or something very bad will happen to you. It was not long before the man had become the most famous physician in the, in the whole world. People said of him, he only needs to look at the sick in order to immediately know their condition, whether they will regain their health or are doomed to die. The people uh, 
came to him from far and wide, taking him to their sick and giving him so much money that he soon became a wealthy man. Now it came uh, to pass that the king became ill. The physician was summoned and was told to say if a recovery was possible. However, when he approached the bed, Ben was standing at the sick man's feet, so no herb on earth would be able to help him. If I could only deceive death for once, said, uh, thought the uh, physician, he will be angry, of course, but because I am his godson, he will shut one eye. I will risk it. He therefore took hold of the sick man and laid him the other way round, so that death was now standing at his head. Then he gave the king some of the herb, and he recovered and became healthy again. However, death came to the physician, made a dark, dark and angry face, threatened him with his finger and said, You have betrayed me. I will overlook it this one uh, this time because you are my good son. But if you dare to do it again, it will cost you your own uh, your neck, for I will take you yourself away with me. <clears throat> Soon afterward, the king's daughter became seriously ill. Uh, she was his only child, and he cried day and night until his eyes were going blind. Then he pro uh, proclaimed that whoever rescued her from death should become her husband and inherit the crown. When the physician came to the sick girl's bed, he saw death at her feet. He should have remembered his godfather's warning, but uh, he was so infatuated by the princess's great beauty and the prospect of becoming her husband that he threw all of his thoughts to the winds. He did not see that death was looking at him angrily, lifting his hand in the air and threatening him with his withered fist. He lifted up the sick girl and placed her head uh, where her feet had been, then he gave her some of the herb, and her cheeks immediately turned red, and life stirred in her once again. Death, seeing that he had been cheated out of his property for a second time, approached the physician with a long stride and said, You are finished. Now it is your turn. Then death seized him so, uh, so firmly with his ice-cold hand that he could not resist, and led him into an underground cavern. There the physician saw how thousands and thousands of candles were burning in endless rows, some large, others medium-sized, others small. Every instant some, uh, some died out, uh, the others were relit, so that the, f uh, the flames seemed to be jumping around in a constant change. See, said Death, there are lifelights of mankind. These are the lifelights of mankind. The large ones belong to children, the medium-sized ones uh, to marry people in their best years, and the little ones uh, to old people. However, even children and young people are, uh, often only have a tiny candle. Show me my life light, said the physician, thinking that it's, uh, it would still be very large. Death pointed uh, to a little stump that is just threatening to go out and said, See, there it is. Oh dear God, uh, Godfather, said the horrified physician. Uh, light uh, and do one for me. Do it as a favour to me so that I can enjoy my life and become king and the husband of a beautiful princess. I cannot, answered Death. One must go out before a new one is lit, uh, lighted. Uh, then uh, set the old one onto a new one. Then set the old one onto a new one that will go a burning after the old one is finished, uh, begged the physician. Death pretended that he was going to fulfil this wish and he took a hold of a large new candle, but desiring revenge, he purposely made a mistake in relighting it so that a little piece fell down and it went out. The physician immediately fell to the ground as he was now uh, on his hands and uh, as he was now in the hands of death. Okay, <clears throat> again, sorry about my uh, stuttery uh, dyslexia, all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, but yeah, that was the second story, which has 
taking us about 15 minutes. I'll see if I can find one more short one just to wrap up. Because mine have been a little bit shorter than Heather's. And it is, you know, it's Halloween's uh, week. So going a bit longer is not a problem. Right, see what I can find. Alright, so the last one that I've managed to find is probably one that's a little bit better known. Uh, there have been some adaptations of it. But I thought it was a good one to end with. And uh, that is Rumpelstiltskin. Alright, so I'll go ahead and get straight into it. <clears throat> there was once a miller who was poor, but he had one beautiful daughter. It happened one day that he came to speak with the king, and to give himself consequence, he told him that he had a daughter who could spin gold out of straw. The king said to the miller, this, uh, That is an art that pleases me well. If thy daughter is as clever as you say, bring her uh, to my castle tomorrow, and that I may put uh, her to the proof. When the girl was brought to him, he led her into a room that was quite full of straw and gave her a wheel and spindle and said, Now set to work, and if uh, by the early morning thou hast not spun all this straw into gold, thou shalt die. And he shut the door himself and left her there alone. And so the poor miller's daughter was left there sitting and could not think uh, what to do uh, what to do uh, for her life she had no notion of uh, how to set uh, to work to spin the gold from straw <clears throat> and her dis and her distress grew so great that she <clears throat> and her distress grew so great that she began to weep then all at once the door opened and in came a little man who said good evening miller's daughter why are you crying <clears throat> Oh, answered the girl, I have got to spin gold out of straw, and I, don't and I don't understand the business. Then the little man said, What will you give me if I spin it for you? My necklace, said the girl. The little man took the necklace, seated himself before the wheel, and whirr, 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 three times round, and the bobbin was full. And then he took up another whirr, and whirr, 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 three times round, and that was full. And so he went on till morning, and when all the straw had spun, all the bobbins were full of gold. <clears throat> At sunrise the king uh, came the king, and when he saw the gold he was astonished and very much rejoiced, for he was very avar avaricious. He had the miller's daughter taken into another room filled with straw much bigger than the last, and told her that is as she valued uh, and told her that as she valued her life she must spin it all in one night. Uh, <clears throat> the girl did not know what to do, so she began to cry, and when the door opened, the little man appeared and said, What will you give me if I spin all this straw into gold? The ring from my finger, answered the girl. So the little man took the ring and began uh, again to send uh, to send the wheel whirring around, and by the next morning all the straw was spun into glistening gold. The king was rejoiced beyond measure at the sight. But as he could never have enough of gold, he had the miller's daughter taken into a still larger room full of straw and said, This too must be spun in one night, and if you accomplish it, you shall be my wife. For he thought, although she is uh, but a miller's daughter, I am not likely to find any uh, anyone richer in the whole world. As soon as uh, the girl was left alone, the little man appeared for the third time and said, What will you give me if I spin the straw for you this time? I have nothing left to give, answered the girl. Then you must promise me the first child you have after you are queen, said the little man. But who knows whether that will happen, thought the girl. But as she did not know what else uh, to do in, in, her in, in her necessity, she promised uh, the little man what he desired, upon which he began to spin, uh, until all the straw was gold. 
and when in the morning the king came and found all done according to his wish, he caused uh, the wedding to be held at once, and the miller's pretty daughter became a queen. In a year's time she brought a fine child into the world, and thought no more of the little man, but one day he came suddenly into her room and said, Now give me what you promised me. The queen was terrified greatly, and offered the little man all the riches of the kingdom if he would only leave the child. But the little man said, No, I would rather have something living than all the treasures of the world. Then the queen began to lament and to weep. So the little man uh, had pity upon her. I will give you three days, he said, and if at the end of that time you cannot tell me my name, you must give up the child to me. The queen then spent uh, the whole night in thinking over all the names that she had ever heard, and sent a messenger through the land to ask far and wide for all the names that could be found. And when the little man came the next day, beginning with Caspar, Melchador, Balthazar, she repeated all she knew, and went through, <clears throat> went through the whole list. But after each one, the little man said, "That is not my name." The second day came. Uh, the second day, the queen sent to inquire for all the neighbor neighbors what the servants were called, and told the little man all the most unusual and singular names, perhaps, saying, perhaps you are called roast ribs, or sheep shanks, or spindle shanks. But he answered nothing but, that is not my name. The third day the messenger came back again, and said, I have not been able to find one single new name, but as I passed through the wood, I came uh, to a high hill, and near it was a little house, and before the house was a burning fire, and around the fire danced a comical little man, as he hopped on one leg and cried, Today do I bake, tomorrow I brew, the, the day after the queen's child comes in. Oh ho, I am glad nobody knew that the name I am called is Rumpelstiltskin. You cannot think how pleased the queen was to hear that name, and soon afterwards, <coughs> uh, when the little man walked in and said, Now, Mrs. Queen, uh, what is my name? Uh, she <clears throat> she said at first, Are you called Jack? No, he answered. Are you called Harry? No, uh, she asked again. No, he answered. Uh, and then she said, Then perhaps your name is Rumpelstiltskin? The devil told you that. The devil told you that, cried the little man. In his anger, he stamped with his right foot so hard that, he, that it went uh, into the ground above his knee and it seized his left foot. And he seized his left foot with both hands in such a fury that he split in two, and there was the end of him. <clears throat> All right. Okay, so that's three interesting little stories from the Brothers Grimm. Like I said, they've written many of the stories that you're going to be familiar with, like Snow White and um, Hansel and Gretel and... Uh, so many of the stories they have about 200 written I actually used to own a copy actually I might, I might still own the copy of uh, basically uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales complete sort of thing which was a fun little book that I got when I was in primary school be funny if I still had it they're really fun little stories and you can actually find them all pretty much uh, on the on the, the website for 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 Rumpelstiltskin it's just called GrimStories.com uh, because they're all now in the public domain, so they're all on there if you would like to read them. Uh, but I think that's a fairly good place to wrap this episode. This episode's probably going to be pushing maybe an hour long, but as we only do an episode every two weeks, and this is a special one for Halloween, I don't think that's necessarily too big of a problem. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed both my stories and Heather's before the, um, the sort of crossover bit. 
Uh, and with all that, we will wrap up and I will talk to you all very, very soon. I hope you have a wonderful Halloween if you celebrate it or just enjoy the, the season as it progresses. Uh, and yeah, keep safe. Uh, and yeah, thank you all for listening. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. Don't forget to check out all the other amazing content on the Nerdsmith Network. If you have any questions for either of us, you can get in contact with us on Twitter at geek underscore thyself. You can also email us at geekthyself at nerdsmith.org. And please don't forget to go to iTunes and leave us a review or also go anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another informative and fun episode. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself. Geek thyself.